Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 13th of January and the year is 2021. So today we're going to be discussing in more detail the corticotropin releasing hormone or corticotropin releasing factor. CRH, CRF, they are identical molecules, protein. Um, and we've been discussing them at some length, uh, I think in the last two episodes, as they relate as this particular hormone and also a peptide neuromodulator, it plays two roles, um, is involved in fear conditioning and the fear response in humans. Now, this can play a major role in neuropsychiatric disorders, such as major depressive disorder, anxiety, and certain psychopathies, but also that fear conditioning and the effect it has on behavior in humans is an element of potential morbidity as it relates to aging. And of course, when we talk about aging and morbidity, we can include, because it's part of the equation, a frank discussion and flora discussion of the immune response. So yes, the corticotropin releasing factor, CRF, is going to be associated with immune response. And yes, there's going to be a dysfunction of the expression of that hormone and or its receptor. And it can occur in various stages of life, but in aging in particular, in association with some forms of dementia, <clears throat> and inability to deal with crises and stress, this is exacerbated as one ages. So that's the only introduction I'm going to give right for this. You can go back and listen to the previous podcast if you want more detail about CRF, but don't worry, you're going to get a lot today. So I want to um, point you to a paper published in Translational Psychiatry in 2019, um, just though probably um, not quite six months ago, uh, and I'll put this in the citation, don't worry, in the show notes. So let's briefly get into what this paper is about and why I'm talking about it this morning. Now, as background, I want you to know that any kind of intensive or intensive and chronic in particular, which includes excessive stress, will diminish intellectual performance and general cognition. And that all of that is a form of what we call negative reinforcement. And it can be related to a learning disability. And as I just mentioned, anxiety, major depressive disorder, uh, and just a fear of future events. Now, there are individual responses and the magnitude of the stressor plays a major role there, how it is experienced. There's also an association with self-identity and goals of the individual. All that influences endurance, resilience, and self-empowerment versus what is known in psychiatry and in general as dissatisfaction and defeat. So stress is likely first become recognized in the developing fetus. We know this because the fetal brain attains awareness during the first trimester. Uh, and maternal stress, of course, is well-established 
as an epigenetic mechanism involved in fetal neural development. Stress is a lifelong um, process and lifelong conditioning aspect of life. And with that comes coping skills to address stress. And that becomes an element of one's individual character and then the ability to overcome that fear and anxiety. So both the quality and quantity of life are linked to stress response. And both of that, both of that, uh, those elements are, uh, uh, that is a quality and quantity of life are associated with cognition and affect or emotion. So stress response is a highly orchestrated mechanism where the body rapidly activates the autonomous nervous system. And of course, that's in association with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical axis, or the HPA axis, we talked about in great deal over the last couple of years here. Now, when you activate the HPA axis and the autonomic nervous system, you get an enormous amount of hormones and neurotransmitters and neuromodulators, some of which are neuropeptides, some of which are lipids, and these are released as an adaptive response to maintain not only physiological homeostasis, but psychological homeostasis, something of which becomes rather fragile as one ages. So again, back to the specifics, corticotropin releasing factor, CRF, and CRF's family of peptides, because that protein can be endo. Uh, proteolytically modified in those peptides then have different functions because of how they bind receptor. These all, the CRF and family of CRF are major regulators of the stress response. And that's because they can integrate these physiological responses to react to a specific stressor. And the dual role that they may be meted out via using CRF as either a hormone or as a neuromodulator. Now, the neuromodulator, the best definition I think I give for you, a working definition, is it is a peptide or another organic compound, um, sometimes a lipid, sometimes a protein, sometimes even a glycosylated lipid or protein, which is synthesized from one neural bed and then is bound to a receptor on another neural bed that is specific neurons associated with that tissue. And then there is some response meted out. So one neuron basically modulating another neuron, or it, I would guess I would call it interneuronal communication is what we are referring to when we say that something is a neuromodulator. Okay, that's a very simple working definition. I can give you a better one later, but that's a good one to keep in mind. Now, a paper published in Cell Reports in October of 2019, I'll give you the full citation in the show notes, tells us the following. So we have this basic psychiatry uh, paper I, I brought up to you. Now let's look at what Cell Reports is going to offer to us today. You get a constitutive regeneration of neurons in what's known as the dentate gyrus or the DG, my initials actually, minus the middle one. So the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus is necessary for the adult brain 
to maintain homeostasis. And of course, it's involved in important cognitive functions. And those are, but not exclusively only, memory and learning. So it's a dentate gyrus of the hippocampus campus associated with the cognitive functions of memory and learning. So there is increasing evidence that suggests the importance of the hippocampal neurogenesis pathway, particularly in humans. And that might suggest or offer uh, potentially a new venue for activating endogenous regenerative capacity of the diseased and or aging brain. Now, why is that? Well, because two of the, the uh, functions of the DG I just mentioned to you are memory and learning. And what happens as you get older is that memory can fade in some individuals. It's not always the case. And the other thing that seems to decline over time, and again, this is also not uh, uniform, is the ability to learn. Okay, these are all these are both cognitive functions uh, associated with the hippocampus, particularly the DG of the hippocampus. So. If you can find uh, any kind of regulator of hippocampal neural stem cell proliferation, it might be possible to dissect the homeostatic mechanisms that potentially lead to um, new pharmacotherapy. Now, the CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, comes to center stage here because it exerts multiple effects on adult brain. And these include spatiotemporal, and that's shown or that's uh, explained by a secretion of site-specific responses in that the CRH, after binding to two possible G-protein-coupled receptors, these are the CRH1 and CRHR2, both of those regulate the formation of neuronal dendrites and these promote, once bound, neuroid elongation, synaptogenesis, and circuit integration of adult-associated neurons. And these modulate excitatory transmission in a neuronal-type-specific manner. Now, this is where we get into neuromodulation. This is how CRH works. Remember, I told you that. That's the definition. It also acts as a hormone. Now, Corruption in the transmission of CRH circuitry has been linked to psychiatric disorders. Indeed, epigenetic writing into the CRH gene locus can obtain elevated psychiatric risk score in adolescence. While single nucleotide polymorphisms in the CRHR1, that's the receptor for the CRH, isoform 1, um, so SNPs in that gene have been linked to the modula, uh, modulation of age-dependent effects on working memory, and that reveals loci-dependent hippocampal dysfunction, even at early ages. So the CRH, CRH receptor system dynamics in these hippocampal neural stem cells and their, their homeostasis in terms of synthesis via proliferation, via division, suggests that CRH is a direct positive regulator of adult neurogenesis. Now, 
where either a lack of CRH or its pharmacological inhibition will severely affect hippocampal neuronal stem cell properties associated with their compromised ability to respond to beneficial environmental stimuli. Whether there's a lack of CRH or pharmaceutical inhibition, as I just said, this has been a readout, okay? So obviously CRH is playing a critical role here, maybe even as a growth factor, right? So ectopic hippocampal expression of the CRH will partially normalize otherwise damaged hippocampal neurostem cell activity in, for example, in a mouse model like a CRH deficient mouse where they've knocked out their gene. Okay? So it can rescue that if it's expressed in the hippocampus. An expression of the CRH, CRH receptor system is conserved from murine to human, particularly when we look at neuronal stem cells. So all that data might suggest that there is a deep regulation of CRH for brain physiology throughout development from early fetus all the way into late uh, aging. And we can maybe describe a CRH-CRHR axis as a potential therapeutic target for not only classical neuropsychiatric disorders, but also for some elements of mental decline in aging, such as those related to memory loss, learning loss, and even the more canonical classical features of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and prefrontal dementia. Okay? So I'm giving you that information so you know why CRF, CRH is so critical. Now, CRF family, getting back to the protein, um, consists of two different receptors, R1, which is one of the functional isoforms, and R2. Now, R2 actually has three functional isoforms or sub-isoforms, alpha, beta, gamma. Okay. Now, the ligands can be CRF and uracortin 1, uracortin 2, and uracortin 3. Okay. So you've got multiple peptides which will bind to these two receptors. And they'll induce, once bound, a G-protein coupled signaling. And it'll all work through the same canonical pathway. We've talked to GPCRs over, uh, over many other uh, lectures. So you have CRF bound to a protein. So you have, you have, this is the first stage of the process. And it releases, so that's in serum, so it's circulating as a CRFBP. CRF can be released then and bind directly to CRF uh, receptor one or to receptor two with the three different flavors, as I told you. And that's going to transduce the signal from the extracellular to the intracellular matrix of the neuron or other cell type, as we will see. Okay. So remember that you're a cortin and CRF both can bind to those receptors. Uracortin um, can bind to CRF uh, receptor one, and it can also bind, and all three of its isoforms, that is UCN one, two, and three, can also bind to CRF receptor two, and those are the alpha, beta, gamma sub uh, forms, right? Okay, so you get sometimes a cooperativity of binding 
of the CRF family peptides. That's the important point here. And there's a difference in affinity. That means there's going to be a difference in binding constants and um, maximum firing of the receptor, just like you could talk about normal enzyme kinetics. Same things happens with receptor kinetics. So as a hormone, the 41 amino acid polypeptide CRF is, of course, as we mentioned, secreted at the onset of stress. And it comes from the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. CRF, of course, gets delivered to the bloodstream, to the anterior pituitary, where it binds with its receptors. And, of course, it stimulates directly, this is hormonal activity, the ACTH, which is the adrenocorticotropic hormone. And it not only does that stimulate it, it stimulates its release. So ACTH release activates synthesis of corticosteroids, of course, in the adrenal cortex. So you get glucocorticoids like cortisol in humans and corticosterone is its analog in the rodent model. So glucocorticoids can exert profound modulatory effects, as I said, neuromodulation on a variety of brain functions from early sensitive developmental stages, uh, neonate, for example, to very late adulthood, say learning a new language or learning how to play a musical instrument. Now, fetal exposure to exogenous glucocorticoids or prenatal stress, as I mentioned at the beginning of the introduction, can lead to a permanent alteration in the HPA axis and therefore all subsequent stress-related performance. Indeed, at the adult stage, high levels of glucocorticoids have been associated with reduced cognitive ability, including poor memory and a decrease in mental uh, fungibility or flexibility, and in fact, processing speed of new information. After crossing the blood-brain barrier, corticoids activate two different types of receptors, as we've said, the GR, and it will also, um, corticoids will also trigger the mineral corticoid receptor, or the MR. It's all part of the greater family of steroids, right? And that can mediate stress responses directly to the brain, of course. So the mineral corticoid receptors are active under basal conditions, and they have a very high affinity to glucocorticoids. In fact, um, they can bind more efficiently than the more classical glucocorticoid, binding to its glucocorticoid receptor in terms of KM and Vmax of the binding to that receptor. Now, glucocorticoid receptors have low affinity you're following that to glucocorticoids and they're activated in response to a very high increase in the level of the glucocorticoid and that's subsequent and during the stress response. So to put all that together, endogenous corticosteroid secretion from the adrenal cortex is under mainly the control of the ACTH and that's produced in the pituitary and ACTH secretion is controlled mostly by the hypothalamic CRF. So that's at the top of this hierarchical distribution of potential activities in the neural crest. So all that aforementioned phenomena relies on transcriptional regulation and it occurs within timeframes ranging from hours to weeks. So it's not the kind of response we think about when you do, like, say, a covalent modification of a protein and you get an immediate 
uh, valency response to the activity of that enzyme. This is a much more prolonged um, regimentation of changes in activity. And that's why we say that it's linked to things like fear conditioning, right, over time. Now, in contrast to hormones, neurotransmitters and neuromodulators by themselves will exhibit a fast action, allowing the neuron to react to a stressful situation right at the synaptic level of activity. And that can occur within milliseconds to minutes, obviously. So CRF acts as a principal hormone in that HPA axis, as I just described to you, you know, hours to days to weeks, and it will trigger a number of secondary stress-related events like the secretion of the corticosteroids in the adrenal cortex. However, in addition to that action to regulate the entire HPA axis and its tonicity at the level of the pituitary, the CRF is also expressed in different parts of the brain where it can act as a neuromodulator, as I've been mentioning, or indeed as a direct neurotransmitter in response to the autonomic and behavioral responses of the individual. So at that particular locus, CRF synergizes with the corticosteroids to fine tune a stress response in a very short time frame networking. So I mentioned that CRF binds to two receptors, R1, R2, and with a higher affinity for the R1, okay? because the mineral corticoids like to bind R2. Now, both of those receptors are seven spanning, uh, there's alpha helical spanning regions across the plasma membrane, G-protein coupled receptors. Now, interestingly, they're expressed in different regions of the brain, and they only share about 70% identity. So that means there's a lot of other uh, sequence in those receptors, which is going to allow for downstream processing of the signal. Now, in addition to that, in addition to CRF, the receptors can bind three other ligands. And I told you they're urocortin-1, urocortin-2, which has another name called stress corpin-related peptide, and urocortin-3, which was classically called stress copin. Now, UCN-1, urocortin-1, can bind to both receptors kind of with similar affinity, whereas UCN-2 preferential binding to that CRF-R2. And UCN3 selectively binds to the CRF-R2 slash 2-3 form. So the binding of crf urocortin one to CRF1, uh, receptor one, and CRF receptor two is modulated in vivo and in vitro by another protein called the CRF binding protein. And in fact, in complex with CRF, so that would be called now crf BP. Now, this is a 37 kilodalton glycoprotein, and it was first detected in human plasma um, in oh, in the last couple of decades. So, CRFBP is structurally unrelated to the CRF receptor, and in vertebrates, the binding protein binds to both CRF with a really, really low Ki of 0.2 nanomolar and to urocortin with uh, urocortin with uh, a, that was 0.2 nanomolar for CRF, urocortin it's two nanomolar, so tenfold uh, less sensitivity. 
but still with a sub-nanomolar affinity, which is actually greater than the affinity for CRF and its receptors when you look at it combined. So the affinity of the CRF binding protein for other CRF family members is substantially lower. For urocortin one, uh, for urocortin two, excuse me, the IC50 is actually 4.4 nanomolar. And for UCN3, there's actually no affinity for CRF binding protein. Okay. Now that all suggests, if you put that together in a logical framework, that CRF binding protein will differentially modulate the activity of the other CRF family members. Now, why we're giving you all this detail is so that you become more aware of the authenticity of the response. So any global changes in simply CRF or CRF receptor expression is not going to get you the kind of fine tuning you may need to alter fear response conditioning at various tissue levels at various stages of life. And based on the valency and potency and the attenuation thereof of a stressor response, which of course is associated back with the emotional response and the cognitive response working coherently, which of course is gonna change over time in the individual. Now, Alzheimer's disease, of course, very important in humans. It's actually the most common cause of dementia. And it's unfortunately one of the most complex human neurodegenerative diseases. We talked a lot about Alzheimer's here, authentic biochemistry, because there's a lot of literature on it. Now, a lot of studies have demonstrated a critical role for the environment, for the pathogenesis and the pathophysiology of AD. In fact, daily life stress self, particularly chronic, can play an important role. Chronic daily life stress. There's been a great deal of epigenetic work done here. And the conclusion is that chronic stress and stress-related disorders play a very important role in the onset of neurodegenerative disorders like AD. And there's an enormous amount of research, particularly in uh, Alzheimer's, where people are starting to examine potential effective treatment strategies for Alzheimer's related to this role of chronic stress uh, and how CRF may play a role. So the CRF is one of the major hormones and neuromodulators, which we know is going to be uh, triggered in the stress response. Therefore, any deregulation of the protein levels of CRF or uroportins could be involved in potentially the pathogenesis of AD, yet very little is known of CRF and CRF binding protein in the neurodegenerative element of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So that's something we're going to need to take a look at in a lot more detail as time goes on. We're just not there yet. So I'm going to stop now because I think I've given you you know, a little bit of neuropsychiatry, a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit about CRF that we haven't talked about before. And next time I'm going to start reintegrating the immune response 
And I won't leave behind entirely neuropsychiatry because I know it piques people's uh, imagination and interest in this topic. And it is directly relevant to the general subject we're on, which is what are the morbid declines that occur in aging in humans and how are they linked to the immune response? And in order to be able to find that axis of interaction, we have to get down to the level of individual uh, uh, for example, bioenergetic pathways, which we spent some time on already. And now we are into deep into the uh, understanding of neurohormones, neurotransmission, neuromodulators, which are all going to be affected in negative ways, finally, uh, when they are accordant with um, diseases of the elderly, such as dementia associated with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, for example. Um, and we can even look at earlier stages of stressors to bring forward those phenomena as they relate to epigenetic writers into the pathways that link CRF into stress responses and then into faculties associated with fear, fear conditioning, and the inability to deal with stressors in later in life which may be linked to the overall pathology of that morbidity of the neuros neuropsychiatric element of aging. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying from Authentic Biochemistry, bye for now.